Welcome to the Best of MBS podcast, a collection of the best interviews hosted by Michael Bungay-Stanier, best-selling author of The Coaching Habit and How to Begin. Today's interview is from the Find Your Great Work interview series. Here's your host, MBS. Brené Brown is a research professor at the University of, I always get this wrong, I want to say Houston, but it's, it's probably Houston or something else, but anyway, down in Texas, where she <laughs> is in the Graduate College of Social Work, and you may have come across her because she's kind of been high profile, well, maybe it's just me, but I think she's been kind of high profile recently, not least because she did an absolutely fantastic TED Talk, and regular listeners will know that I'm a, have been a long-time fan of TED, and Brené Brown is just one of those reasons why I continue to be a fan of TED. And Brené, as well as working in that general sphere of social work, has actually spent the last decade or so studying vulnerability, courage, authenticity, and shame. Just such an interesting grab bag of big, important, challenging states of being and, and emotions. And um, recently has come out with a book called The Gifts of Imperfection, Letting go of who we think we should be and embracing who we are, which is full of juicy exploration there. It basically has 10 different guideposts on how to live a more authentic, more grounded, more wholesome life. And we're going to be exploring some of those uh, guideposts in part of this conversation. So I am pretty thrilled to have Brené on the line with me. Brené, welcome. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Um, Okay, let let me ask you a question which I haven't prepped you for at all, so it's going to put you on the spot a little bit. Excellent. One one of your guideposts is around the importance of meaningful work, which of course is uh, preaching to the choir because you know know I'm all about great work. If I was to ask you to tell a story, a key moment of, of 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 a moment of your own meaningful work or authentic work or great work, can you tell us a story just to get us rolling in terms of a, a peak moment like that? A peak moment. Well, yeah, okay, I can, actually. Um, I think for me, my I got my head and heart around the idea of what meaningful work is <laughs> through the back door when I realized that I had a really horrible pattern of looking outside of myself to see what it is that I thought I should be doing. And then unfortunately, I've got a pretty good skill set in terms of how to politically and academically achieve goals. And so, which, you know, is a good thing and a bad thing. And so I think I had a pattern where I'd look outside of myself and see what I'm supposed to be doing and then go kind of ball to the wall to do that. And I ended up on the top of a couple of heaps that had absolutely no meaning for me in a, in a soulful, important way. And so for me, I think my story of finding meaningful work was realizing it was a moment in my life where I realized it's not about whether you can do it or not. It's about whether you want to do it. Does it inspire you and does it do good? And as a social worker, I mean, I have a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD in social work. So the kind of the kind of doing best, you know, doing good to do best and do, you know, the double bottom line thing is really part of who I am. Um, But in that moment where I realized it wasn't about, can you achieve it? Do you want to achieve it? What I realized is that I don't think if we're not doing work that's meaningful to us personally, that doesn't personally inspire us, we're kidding ourselves if we think we're changing the world. That's, that's, 
powerful words, and and you know I'm nodding vigorously because I'm, I'm similar in the sense that I can turn my hand to many things, and that's not the measure of success anymore. No, it's a measure of not can I do it, but actually is this is this of all the things I could be doing, is this the best thing to be doing? How how did you? I mean, knowing that you could have probably done a whole bunch of stuff, how did you find the place of focus to know which path to walk? That was the problem, and that's a really that's a really loaded question for me. I mean, it almost makes me teary-eyed when you ask it. Um, how did you know the path to walk? Here's what I, for me, was, and I, for me, was profoundly changing. And I think in my research, I find this in a lot of people. I think that I spent my whole life looking for a path. Okay, so. Hmm. I get my PhD, I have a business background, and so the path that lays out in front of me is, you know, my dean calls me in and says, I'm a you know, first-year, tenure-track professor, I want to groom you for dean, for a dean position one day. And of course, there, there's that path, and I understand exactly how you get that. You have to do, you know, 43 articles that are peer-reviewed, 16 this, read a budget, do this, understand the politics of the account, you know. Yeah. And so there's a path and I started to go down it and started to be very successful very quickly. I guess for me, when I sat back and realized, God, you know, this is like, some of this work is like drilling a hole in my forehead and sucking my soul out through it. You know, this is not what I want to do. Um, what I realized was holding me back was the fact that when I wrote down what made me the happiest, where I felt like I could really you know, that, that quote, don't, you know, um, Howard Thurman, don't do what the world needs, do what makes you come alive because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. Um, what I realized is the things that make me come alive, there was no path. There was no one out in front of me doing it. There was no, I didn't say, oh, there she is. And she's 38 and she's got really young kids and a, you know, a partner who's got a big career. And this is, these are the 25 steps. And so often Meaningful work, in my opinion, is not at the end of a well-trodden path. Right. And that's scary. And so for me, I feel like I've been out front in some ways and behind in others, but really alone. And the, and, the, and for me, the, the community comes not from people that are doing exactly what I'm doing, but from other people who are forging a path. That's, I mean, it's very interestingly put. I mean, there's a, a Spanish poet whose name I can't remember, but he says, we make the path when we walk. And, you know, part, part of what I think you're saying is like, you know, here's my path, or here's another great quote, which I think you'll like is, um, inspiration is when my path suddenly makes sense. <laughs> you finally get to a point where you look back and you go, oh, that's what the path I was walking. Who knew at the time? Because at the time I was sort of stumbling forward going, mm, I hope this is my best guess. No, exactly. That's exactly right. And I think I love that inspiration. And what's really funny is that quote that you're talking about, um, it's actually originally a Spanish quote, and it's the quote that leads into my dissertation. Um, and the, yeah, traveler is there is no path. You make it while you're walking. It's right. kind of, yeah. And so, of course, I can't think of the guy's name either. Antonio, <laughs> and I can't remember, but... Um, we'll pretend we're on first name basis with him. So yeah, Antonio. Tony. <laughs> call him Tony. That's the big right. G. <laughs> um, no, I love that. I think it's true. So I think so. what holds so, mon- so many of us back from meaningful work is the idea that you know, for me, and I say this in the TED Talk, is, you know, that moment when 
when this event planner called and said, I really am trying to promote your event, you're coming to speak, and so I want everyone to know you're a researcher, but I'm afraid that if I tell, you know, if I put that on your bio, no one will come because they'll think you're boring. And, but what I love about your work is that you're a storyteller, so I think I'll put storyteller. And, you know, in that moment, I was both cringing and excited. I was cringing because I thought, oh my God, storyteller, wait till my, co- wait till the next faculty meeting. Right. They're like, here's Brene. She's a storyteller, you know? Um, but that's when I said to this woman, you know, maybe I'm just a researcher storyteller. And then she started laughing with this really terrible cackle and said, no such thing as a researcher storyteller. We can't put that, right. you know, and that's just an example of, I don't know. I, I, there's no set path for a researcher no storyteller. No. So knowing that there's no path stretching on ahead of you, and yet knowing that you're stepping forward into something, how do you how did you find the whatever it was, courage or wisdom or foolhardiness to go? Well, knowing that I don't know, I don't know what the path is. Here are the next steps I'm going to take because I'm sure you speak for lots of people going, whatever paths there are, they're not right for me. So I need to forge my own journey, but I don't know how to take the first step on that journey. Well, I did it at first really half-heartedly, which led to tremendous failure and like a big fat shame spiral. (laughs) Really. Um, Because it's like, you know, I don't know how long we're going to chew up this path metaphor. I could do it for days, but I've got, that's a really like a person, like a a personality disorder for me, the metaphor thing. Um, But you know, for me at first, I did it real half-heartedly. I just kind of stuck my toe in and was kind of, you know, thinking I'm going to be kind of a researcher and kind of in this other social media world, but I'm only going to do the safe part of all of it. And really things fell apart and nothing worked. And I was, I felt half-assed at everything. I didn't feel successful at anything. And there was tremendous failure. And it was at that moment that I realized you know, that moment, a year of great therapy that I realized, I don't know, it's, um, I I had to stop living by what other people thought. And I had to, I mean, I cannot, words cannot tell you how much I need to know like what the rules are of a game. I don't mind, I don't mind engaging in a game. I don't, I don't mind it, uh, at all. And I'm, I'm really good in a street fight. You know, I'm strong, I'm tough, quick witted at times. Um, but to go into this, I, this, this whole thing where I don't know what the rules are. I don't know what the parameters are. Um, what I realized is kind of sneaking into it is just a disaster. So right. the first year was a nightmare. That's, I mean, it's always fantastic to have people go, it was a disaster, it was a mess, because it's so reassuring for everybody else who goes, normally the histories you, you hear told of are stories of success, and it feels like this linear process, because history always feels linear. Oh, God, yeah. And yeah. it's such a damn lie compared to what the, 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 the truth we experience there, which is like, it's not linear at all. I just stumbled into Ford and hoped until I hit something, and then I stumbled off in a different direction. I mean, that, that's it. I mean, and I, and, and I think one of the, I think part of my disaster kind of fall apart failure experience was always holding myself up against people who I perceived had a linear route to success. Right. It was very, you know, one of the great stories I talked about, uh, people I've talked to with is David Allen. And David Allen, of course, 
when you view Getting Things Done and his amazing book and how he's got a cult figure and all this stuff that's working for him, you kind of go, damn it, how did you do that? And when you hear his stories about how he did it, there's a whole lot of stumbling around and getting it wrong and starting again and making a mess of things. And it's, it's in fact, a recurring theme with people who have been successful is when you ask a little bit, you go how unlinear and how how unreliable their plans were, in fact, to where they ended up. Yeah, and I think for me, ironically, so much of it, was tied to what I researched. So much of it was tied to worthiness. So much of it was, you know, if I could look back and whisper in the ear of the, of myself, you know, in 2006 and 2007, when this was happening, I would say, Hey, if you don't have the courage to get excited about what you're doing, don't expect other people to get excited about it. Um, if you're not willing to pick up the phone and make calls that feel awkward, um, then it's not going to work out. And if you distance yourself from what you're trying to do and you are trying to protect yourself from the vulnerability of what you're trying to do, by definition, you're going to fail. Don't you love irony? I mean, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it's a, it's a big old therapist bill for me. Yeah, exactly, but irony is always better in, in retrospect, of course. Yeah, it's $100 an hour irony for <laughs> me. <laughs> what, I mean, you talked about a few really – I mean, you talked about a lot of interesting things, but you talk about this years of sort of big fat failure. You talk about the shame spiral. You talked about therapy as one of the ways that you got support. One of your guideposts is around cultivating a resilient spirit. So – and knowing that you've you've collected scars along the way, how did you and how do you now build and maintain your resilience? <clears throat> you know what was fundamental for me, I think fundamentally profoundly changing for me is um, the development of a community of to be a part of a community of folks who are doing similar work. And by similar work, I don't mean the same work that I'm doing. I mean that our trying to do path-breaking work in their areas mm-hmm. who are, you know, I think by definition, good work, meaningful work is vulnerable work because it's, it's not always the work that's really held up as our culture is important and are, are, are valuable because it's, you know, does it, it sometimes has the financial stuff to go along with it and sometimes doesn't. Um, so for me, resilience, you know, my faith has become a really important part of my work. Um, and not in so much that I, I, I do talk about it sometimes, but just that I stay really focused on what I'm doing. And as long as I think I'm making a contribution that makes the world a little bit better place that I've got a little, for me, I've got a higher calling, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so that helps me. But I also think that, really community is huge for me. I belong to a group of friends that, um, we call ourselves the love bombers. And, um, what was funny is they sent me an invitation. I think it was 2008. And they said, you know, you don't know us, but would you like to spend a long weekend in Oregon on the coast with, you know, 13 other women trying to do good work in photography and art and writing and, and at first I was like, oh, ho, 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 hell no. <laughs> um, no, like, le- you know, voted least likely to go to the coast with a bunch of people I don't know, um, especially kind of like hippie, free-spirited people, not me. Um, but I went, and it was life-changing. It was people I realized that were really, like you say, trying to do more good work. Mm-hmm. 
and it changed me profoundly. And what is it that is it? What is it about that connection? And I know connection is one of the one of those three gifts of imperfection that you talk about, along with courage and compassion. But what is it about that sense of connection that did change you? I mean, how? Because I mean, people listening to this, they have heard a sense of you know build a community or get some people around you or build build a support network. They've heard that before. And I'm just wondering if you can articulate what what's the nature of the shift that a community like that can bring? <clears throat> In our culture today, I don't think that we feel safe being vulnerable. I think you know, what we know, what I know from my research is the more uncertain we are in terms of politics and economics and social uncertainty, the more, the scarier it is to wake up and walk out and be vulnerable to the world. And so what we, most of us do, I think, is that we practice invulnerability. We put on our, you know, we put on the game face, we walk out the front door, we are in kick-ass mode, we flip people off on the way to work, we get to work. We stay postured fairly defensively because, you know, it's, we're doing, most of us are working far beyond human scale. Um, I wish I could right? frame that sentence. We're working far beyond human scale. Yeah. God, I wish. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, and there's, there's serious consequences to that. So we, we stay invulnerable because when you work beyond human scale, basically what you create are big pools of disappointment constantly around you because we just can't do it all. We're not built to answer 600 emails a day and take 45 calls and, you know, we're not built like that. And so being vulnerable is very difficult. So what happens is we think of vulnerability as weakness and we think of vulnerability associated with feelings like disappointment or shame or fear or grief. Um, and so we're like, well, and vulnerability is not too bad of a deal because I, I don't really want to feel disappointed and fearful and shamed and you know, grief and these bad things. But the problem is that vulnerability is also the cradle, I mean, the real birthplace of courage, innovation, creativity, authenticity, love, belonging, joy. Um, without authenticity, I mean, without vulnerability, we can't experience those things either. And so what I think is very important for community is, and it's not just any community, it's a community of folks around whom you can be vulnerable. And so for me, it's about, you know, I'm like, hey, guys, I'm writing about something that I'm really pissed off about. I'm getting ready to put it on my blog, and I just need some support. I need a little bit of hand-holding. Okay, Brene, go. We're here. Right. Okay, I put the post up. Okay, guys, getting hammered in the comments. You know, and then they're like, we're all, you know, yes, you're getting hammered, but you had the courage to put it out there, and what's the alternative? Right. right. You know, and so it's a community of folks with whom I can really let myself be seen. And I, and I try to let myself be seen to the world in general. I mean, I try to be very authentic and I think most people who know me, you know, from the PTO or my church or what, you know, wherever yeah. would say I'm the same person that you see on stage if I'm talking to a thousand people. But when it comes to storytelling, which I think is the heart of community, I really do believe that our most vulnerable stories are stories when we're struggling with shame and not being good enough. Those are stories reserved for people in my life who have earned the right to hear them. That's very interesting. I mean, I think before we, we started recording this, I was telling you very briefly about uh, my mastermind group. And this is, uh, 
five other people who um, check in on a on a almost daily basis on a website, and we talk on the phone every two weeks, and um, we we meet for a, a long weekend every every year or so for for four days or so, and it, its purpose is actually exactly that, which is um, we have earned the right within ourselves to talk about our most <laughs> messy, shameful, vulnerable places. Because our job in so much of our life is actually to show up pretty shiny and right. um, competent. I mean, we're, we're, we're all business people, so people want a degree of competence when they hire or work with you. And, right. And yet the source of growth and innovation and what's next and comes from going, yeah, it's a mess. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm just like overwhelmed or I'm embarrassed right. or whatever it might be. I'm in over my head, man. Right. And um, the, these these people, if you pop the lid on what we talk about on their things, it's like this kind of moaning, whiny mess of kind of pitifulness. Um, but 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 only out of context. In the context, it's actually something much more precious than that. God, it is. Precious is a, such a great word. And I think you know one of the things that for me, my group, my community. What they allow, because we're all in similar work, is real wisdom. I mean, like, you know, hey, you know, watch this on Facebook or, you know, real wisdom. And I think the hallmark of this group for me, which is so powerful, is this idea that here you can never be too small or too big. And that they're also the people that I can email and say, oh, my God, woohoo, just made this, you know, just made a bestseller list. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so, and that's important to have that too, because that is also vulnerable. Right. To actually say, listen to me, actually proclaim how awesome I am. Right. Because you don't get to, there's not much, there's not, there's not a whole lot of cultural acceptance for coming out going, look how damn fantastic I am. No, yeah, right. Really quickly, Brene, because just yeah. so I, I want to grab you, grab this before we, we start wrapping the call up in the next minute or two. But just you talk about one of your one of the guideposts towards this wholehearted living being the importance of calmness and stillness, and and you've you've intimated why that's important by our beyond human scale of living. But can you just speak a little bit to why this became one of the ten critical things? Yeah, I would have never in a million of million years guessed that, you know, cultivating a sense of calm and stillness was important. But I think it does go back to operating beyond human scale. And I think it's about sometimes we stay so busy um, that we – and sometimes I think it's on purpose that sometimes we're so busy and we're staying so busy that the truth of our lives – can never catch up with us. Like, are we really happy? Are we doing work that matters to us? Um, are we can, you know, when I sit down with Steve and, you know, Ellen and Charlie, my kids, um, you know, do I feel like we, do I feel connected to them? I mean, and it's so busy is so much easier sometimes for us than intimacy, than truth. And so I think being able, you know, calm, it's a practice for me. It's, you know, for, I define it, I think is, um, an ability to manage emotional reactivity. Right. You know, this idea that when I hear something, whether it's my sixth grade daughter talking about something that's happening at her school or read a comment that is, you know, pokes me in a tender place, 
can I manage my reactivity? Can I, you know, do some breathing and bring some perspective to what I'm, what, what I'm hearing? And I think doing that and I think stillness, both of those create a clearing that allow us to get in touch with what's really going on for us. Right. And it, it reconnects back to this piece around busyness as opposed to intimacy. Intimacy is one of those doorways into vulnerability. Into Absolutely. What is, what is really going on here? Is this really the person I want to be? Is this really the life I want to create for myself? Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, I think when you, when I, inter, you know, I've spent 10 years collecting interviews. And so a lot of times one of the, one of the interesting themes and patterns that emerged from the qualitative research was how often after involuntary stillness and illness, a death, a tragedy, a trauma. Um, people were like, when I got still because I was forced to, I got such clarity about what was important and what wasn't. And I just think it's, I think it's worth being able to create that and cultivate in our lives and not wait until we're taken down by it. Yeah, fantastic. Hey, Brenna, yeah. I would love to keep talking to you for about another 73 hours, but in the the interest of um, allowing people to carry on with their own lives, if people want to find out more about your work and um, want to pick up your book and and check you out online, because I'm sure you're, I know you're online in many ways, can you give them some coordinates so that they can find you? Sure. Um, My website is brenebrown.com, just B-R-E-N-E-B-R-O-W-N.com. My blog is ordinarycourage.com, which you can jump to from my uh, website. And I'm on Facebook, and I'm also on Twitter at at Brene Brown. And uh, for folks who haven't seen it, and we'll put a link on this when we post the interview, but checking out Brene's uh, TED Talk as well is a very fine thing to do. It's a really great 17 minutes of vulnerability and courage and and laughter and compassion. Oh, thank you so much. Brenda, it has been a pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Best of MBS interview. Want more great content? Head to mbs.works. There you'll find MBS's new podcast, Two Pages. You can learn about his best-selling books, and you can join the newsletter. That's mbs.works.